If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Whether you're working out or working on your high score, you never settle for less. So why should it be any different when you choose your protein drink? Rockin' Protein comes in three delicious flavors, has 30 grams of protein, and is always made with fresh milk. So you're never left with that chalky taste. Rockin' Protein. Never settle for less than a great-tasting, high-quality protein drink. Visit rockinprotein.com to find Rockin' Protein wherever you are. Rockin' Protein and Jamrock Farms are registered trademarks of Shamrock Foods Company. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select Eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Mm, It's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore. See the love. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How responsible are novelists for shaping public understanding of the past? In today's podcast, the award-winning historical novelist Ian McEwan is joining us the author of books including On Chessel Beach, Enduring Love and Atonement. He spoke to Emily Briffitt about his inspirations for writing and discussed his new book, Lessons, a novel spanning the major events of the 20th century. Hello to you, Ian. It's a real pleasure to be chatting to you today. Well, thanks for inviting me. Now, you've just written a book called Lessons. So just to situate our listeners in what we're going to be talking about today and the story... What is this book about? Can you set the scene for us for this? Well, this is what is broadly called a whole life novel. And its central character, Roland Baines, uh, is born the same year as me. Uh, But he is most certainly not me, although I have given him some aspects of my early life, especially childhood and teenage years. And he really is a means for me to uh, really examine not only his whole life, but the various sort of political changes we've lived through, the large-scale global events that, whether we follow them closely or not, really do penetrate our lives, often at a very intimate, personal level. Uh, So, you know, the novel covers 
1948, really 1947 or 1948, right through to um, July last year, the pandemic. So roughly uh, the aftermath of the Second World War um, and, um, yes, the, the lockdown and the intrusion of this great pan-planet moment um, when we were separated from friends and family. Why did you decide to talk about this particular time? I've always been interested in character in novels. I think of characters in fiction as the great uh, inheritance of the 19th century. It was called into question with modernism and postmodernism. We can never get round the great aesthetic upheaval and lessons of, of modernism. But I worry sometimes that the novel might have thrown the baby out with the bathwater, that really, unless we have that human contact with a character, um, we're sort of lost. I mean, there have been some experimental novels that have no characters in them at all. Uh, so uh, I got to the point now, and this sort of later part of my own life, I'm in my mid-70s, when I wanted to examine character through the whole sweep of a lifetime. And so there are certain moments that impinge on Roland's life, the Suez crisis um, and uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, so it's not all crises, uh, and on. Uh, but at the same time, you know, his own private life is, is stormy and often shaped and influenced and deflected by these global events. And it's rather like characters in... Um, antiquities, great sagas like the Aeneid, the Aeneid or um, the Odyssey, in which there are these quarrelsome gods. In this case, you know, could be Khrushchev and Kennedy, but they're all too human. They're as, exactly as human as we are and as flawed as we are, and yet they have colossal power, and we have very little influence over what they do. And as in the Odyssey, sometimes these gods are very jealous of each other, uh, and the consequence of them going to war is that we have to go to war too. So it's that, it's that sense of powerlessness that we have before historical events. And yet we are, whether we like it or not, participants. Do you think these historical events are not just shaping our lives, but also shape our memories of these past historical events as well? Absolutely. I mean, this novel is based on the idea that just as people talk of rock and roll or pop music as laying down the soundtrack of their lives... Uh, for me, if I were to chart my alternations between cultural and political pessimism and optimism, I could draw a long line from the fall of the Berlin Wall, where I was present, probably the most world historical moment that I was ever a participant in, right the way down to the, the assault on the Capitol in Washington in um, January last year. So, yes, they they do become the markers of our memory. And again, they channel our perspective on our own lives. I think we're great rewriters of our own existence. In my experience, people start really talking earnestly about their childhood and parents when they're in their mid to late 30s. I know everyone would have their own view on this, but they have enough stacked up in terms of adult life to begin, and maybe they're already young parents themselves by this time, um, and they begin to get a perspective 
on something they just lived inside, either as a teenager or, or as a child. And I remember, yes, in my mid-30s, having the most intense conversations about my parents, my childhood, my teenage years, coming of age, um, all those things that shape us. Um, and that extraordinary transitional moment in our lives, which again is like we could almost cast it as a in heroic and historical terms, that transition from teenage years to adulthood, uh, from you know, suddenly having a, a, a purse or a wallet or a, a, the keys to something or, or even, you know, your first car that you bought for, and my first car cost £30 um, and was an incredible liberation. Nowadays, a first car is, I think, less important. I mean, I know so many people, young people under the age of 30, who, who will never drive, who don't want to, not interested. Um, so uh, these histories, personal and global, intertwine and uh, characters shift through life as they redraw the, or redefine what was important um, they might blame their parents, they might forgive their parents at different times, and it shifts backwards and forwards. As they become parents themselves, perhaps they're more forgiving. Who knows? Uh, but it it doesn't rest still. That's my sense of things. And I really wanted to reflect this in the life of this young man, Roland Baines. Now, there's a couple of things I want to draw on from what you've just said. But first, I'd like to ask you... Roland as a character seems to be quite reflective of his life. Given what you've just said, do you think as a society we are quite collectively reflective? Well, I don't really know the answer to that, but I do worry that the digital intrusion with all its delights um, has made us somewhat less reflective and we spend less time with our feet on the radiator staring out of the window because there is this magical device, this little slab in your pocket that is a portal to all the all that's best and worst in human nature and human actions. Against that, I'd say we are living in a golden age of long-form journalism. And actually, if in 50 years' time you are a historian wanting to write about the first 25 years of the 21st century, you will have an enormous amount of reflective journalism. Journalism, hardly the word for it, but reflective essay writing, really. Old-fashioned essay writing is one of the glorious rediscoveries, I think. You know, the, those pieces of prose that are you know, somewhere between three and 10,000 words long, reflecting on who we are and where we are now, I think this is a glorious moment for such kind of writing, whether it's, you know, London Review of Books or New York Review of Books or any number of um, online publications, an Atlantic Monthly and so on and so on. So are we more reflective, less reflective? I think at the individual personal level, um, perhaps less so. I When I started writing in the 70s, that great fruit of civilization called solitude was far more available to me uh, than it is now. Now I'm slightly more fidgety. I'm like everyone else. I resisted having a smartphone for a long time because I just saw that people were glued to it nonstop. 
they were never alone. Um, and then I gave way and I'm just like everyone else, slightly itchy and restless and um, no one's emailed me or WhatsApped me for five minutes. So what's going on? You know, <laughs> that kind of mad uh, state of mind. But I think at the social level, cultural level, we have become rather good at being very articulate about all our worries and anxieties. And we have plenty, I guess, to, to, to think about. Something that I guess really contributes in a way is things like novels and books. How responsible are novelists like yourself for shaping the public's understanding of the past? Well, uh, I find that hard to answer because my first instinct is to say that, that novelists, poets, all writers should do exactly as they feel they must. And some writers are interested in, and maybe that's more the operative word than feel responsible for, but more interested in um, public events, historical events, trying to understand them or understand them in from a different point of view than other writers who want to explore the private life or how a marriage begins and or how a marriage fails or love and the end of love and so on, which are all great subjects and central, I think, especially to the novel in English. So um, responsibilities sound like one's casting duties on this. What I would say, though, is that there is um we have a great gift in the novel uh in terms of what it has become over three or four centuries. We've found a literary device in which we can look at individual fates acting out against larger scale social global political cultural shifts, and we can understand ourselves um through this medium of, of connecting the private subjective self to the the buzz, the busy hum of men, as Milton wrote. Um, but, of course, he should have written The Busy Hum of Men and Women. That there is um, a vast accumulated um, pile of techniques that are given to us to, to do this, so that, you know, we can look back at Trollope, who was... A, I think, a master at looking at fates and politics and cultural shifts, or Dickens. Or we can you know, look back to Jane Austen uh, and do it. So we have this instrument. Uh, and, I, you know, in, in a month in which Salman Rushdie has been attacked, um, I have to say that writers must be free to do with this instrument uh, what they will, um, so th this is my always my rather awkward um, response to this very frequently asked question. I mean, what what are the writer's responsibilities? I don't think when we're building a novel, those responsibilities are right at the forefront. One is drawn by one's own impulses of fascination, 
And those two are deeply rooted in who we are, who we think we are and our personalities. The novel is a very personal thing. Could we perhaps say it's more about capturing the sentiments of a person of a time instead rather than an active responsibility? Yeah, that that too. Sometimes a novel will helplessly um, give a sense of its time uh, without that particularly being in the forefront of the writer's imagination. My own interest in this has been fairly conscious I guess not not from the, my very early work, which was sort of rather claustrophobic and perverse, but um, from my third novel, um, The Child in Time, I was interested in letting in history, letting in science, letting in all the currents of thought and the excitement of thought that uh, helped shape us. So... Uh, and again, in a novel like uh, it was called *The Innocent*, and it was set in Berlin, and that grew from a very uh, extraordinary moment historically. Uh, I was in Moscow with a group uh, of us. We belonged to an anti-nuclear organization, very small, called European Nuclear Disarmament. E. P. Thompson, the great historian. Uh, was one of the key figures in the founding of that group. And we were in Moscow to make contact. Remember, this is the depths of the Cold War. The United States and Soviet Russia seemed intent on placing tactical nuclear weapons in Europe and having a third world war by proxy. So this was, I mean, for Europeans, this is a disastrous notion. Uh, and we were in Moscow to try and make touch with dissident uh, writers, intellectuals, translators who wanted to address the Russian military industrial complex. Like all peace groups from the West, we were greeted with open arms by the Soviet authorities, um, put in a nice hotel, well, the least bad hotel at least, uh, called the Ukraina, which now has a Rolls Royce showroom in its on its ground floor, but then was actually extremely austere. Um, and uh, we did finally make touch and drove out. Many of my generation had this experience to have incredibly exciting, intense discussions around a Formica kitchen table on the 15th floor of some high-rise on the edge of a city, always knowing that you've been followed out there and you've been followed back. Uh, but it was the time of Glasnost and Perestroika. Um, it, it was a top-down moment in which... From Gorbachev downwards, everyone was suddenly told they could, they were free to speak their minds. Uh, everyone was very suspicious, thinking maybe it was a trap. Uh, but the officials we spoke to, we never got as high as Gorbachev, but we got pretty high up, um, were very uh, persuasive that this was a game changer, perestroika, Glasnost was coming, Soviet society was going to change. But when we said, well, would you allow political parties in opposition to the Communist Party? They didn't know the answer. Um, they fumbled or they, you know, they talked around it. And it became clear to me, at least, but I think to others in the group, that if this really was the course of um, Soviet policy, then it was the end of the Cold War because the Soviet Union could not hold together once there was free speech. There would have to be political parties. 
And once Gorbachev had mentioned too, and we, this was relayed to us, that no military violence would be used against any of the um, satellite states of its empire, you know, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, etc. Then I came away from Moscow thinking the Cold War is over and I want to write a novel all about it. So uh, I couldn't do Moscow. I didn't know enough Russian or any, enough about Russian culture, but I knew enough about Germany. So I set it in Berlin. And I spent a long time along the Berlin Wall and, and wrote this novel, finally, with the help of a, a good researcher, uh, getting to the beginnings of the Cold War in the 50s and carrying it right through. And I finished in June 89, in which in the last sentences of the book, I predicted the fall of the wall. Four months later, the wall fell and no one was more surprised than me. Um, so I was straight across on a plane um, on the 10th of November and spent days there. And I'd spent so long researching my novel and living and feeling this wall. Uh, and it seemed the perfect subject for a novel because here's this wall cutting right through private lives. And yet it was the cutting edge, the frontier of a huge ideological struggle. Um, perfect for the novel in the in the ways in which I've talked about before. So uh, I went completely amazed, thinking, well, you know, the CIA didn't get this right. I did. But actually, I was genuinely surprised. Um, and so it was irresistible to give all my experiences and all the notes I took at that time to Roland, who also gets on a plane and arrives on November the 10th, and I give him more or less everything I saw and felt and that was the beginning, I think, of the most politically and culturally optimistic moment in in my sense of the span of life, 48, 46, 48, through to um, 21, 2021, uh, that I had known. And I was very grateful to come back to, to uh, the origin of your question, um, to have all the instruments of the novel the hero of the innocent, um, and also now the the central figure of lessons, to have all behind me, um, like Newton, novelists stand on giant shoulders, um, and uh, I don't think there is any other instrument that can give you this. I don't think movies or plays or poetry can give you that sustained feeling of political, cultural change through time. Um, so do we have a responsibility towards it? Well, I think we have a responsibility to respect it. That's, that's to respect the wonderful instrument that we've been given. There, there is a great collusion, I think, between fiction and history. Um, what they have in common is they're both driven by the necessity to to be constantly on the job. So histories have to be constantly rewritten. Novels have to constantly address that relationship between the private world, the subjective world, the world of relationships, and the, the bigger world over which we have no control but which impinges on us um, so mightily. Well, you answered one of my questions that I, that I had, actually. I was going to come back and ask you about the Berlin Wall. So thank you so much for bringing it up. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And on the cover, there's always a picture of Punch, and he's mopping his brow. 
because it's so hot. And in a moment of inspiration, I was sitting in the school library. I went across to the shelves and there were all the old bound volumes of Punch. And I pulled out the volume from 1900, which is when the novel is set. It's the month of July. Opened it and I just got this thrill down my back because there on the front cover was Punch mopping his brow. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Having spoke about your experiences, how do you actually go about recreating these moments and recreating this feeling and sort of sentiment of the time that's got to be quite a challenge in some ways it's sort of uh, simply a matter of establishing first the people the characters who are going to take you through this and if you can convince yourself that this character has come alive on the page for you the next bit is relatively Simple, because in any given scene, you simply have to become that person. Uh, So in lessons, there were certain crucial scenes. Roland experiences uh, when he's 11, he's sexually groomed by his piano teacher, a woman who uh, then has, when he's 14, um, a very passionate affair with him. Um, So it is a moment, I mean, a a two-year affair, um, that is by all definitions abusive, but at the same time, he feels that he's really the one who started this. He is the one who 
is full of anxiety that the world is about to end because of the Cuba Missile Crisis. Um, and like everyone else, he thinks that there's a real possibility of an all-out nuclear war and that he might get vaporised uh, before he's had any sexual experience. So he goes knocking on his piano teacher's door. He thinks he has all the agency. What then happens with all the anxiety of the Cuba Missile Crisis happening around him I simply had to become him. I just knocked on that door myself. 45 years later, he knocks on her door again to confront her about what she did. I was at great pains to not write notes before I got to this scene, simply because I wanted to find out what would happen. And there's a great temptation for novelists. It's the nature of being interviewed about something you did. Um, it always comes out sounding as if everything that's in this book was everything that you intended. But it's much more like painting a painting in this respect. You know, the, the, there are palimpsests, there are things that get crossed out, there are things that get overlaid. You write it to discover what it is. And in the writing of the novel, it teaches you how to write it. So all of those elements of uh, the feel of a certain time will just come out. They will, they will just be there but only if you've established character. And I come back to the root, the, the anchor of the novel is convincingly, plausibly manufacturing out of little symbols on a page and by mind transference, telepathy, if you like, into the mind of a, a character, but then from there into the mind of the reader, um, a whole living, plausible person who will be your door, as it were, to events. Um, yeah, so that's all I have to say about that. In that regard, what advice would you give listeners, perhaps who are aspiring to write fiction in a historical way? I suppose, in a sense, I've been writing historical fiction, but it's, it's nearly all my historical fiction is rooted firmly in recent history, in the 20th century, in how how we passed through two or three lifetimes, as it were, uh, to where we are now. Now, there are great, uh, among us, great masters of the historical novel like Hilary Mantel, and I think what she undertakes is much more difficult because people spoke differently then and you've got to find, and I think especially dialogue in a historical novel is a minefield. You don't really want people saying forsooth or whatever um uh, you've got to find a, a prose an analytical narrative prose that somehow reflects something of the time you've got to have dialogue that seems somewhat historically located in the time but not excessively so because it's going to drive readers nuts and i think that's a very precarious matter. I've never attempted it myself, um, but I'm full of respect, especially to Hilary Mantel for doing what she's done. That's much bolder. As for setting things in the, uh, say, antiquity, somehow the further away it gets, maybe it's easier. So I, Claudius, of Robert Graves, for example, is a wonderful book. And I used to read as a child Mary Reynolds as uh, historical books for children and, and many others. But it is difficult. Um, but I've dodged that bullet. Um, my characters, 
yes, I set things in the 50s and even in the 30s, but I'm steeped in the literature of those times. In fact, other novels have helped me. I mean, I have a sense of a slightly higher degree of formality between people um, in those times, but it's not radically different from who and what we are now. So what would be my advice? I forgot. That was your question. (laughs) Choose your period carefully. Um, But study the writers you admire, because it is difficult to set a novel back in the 19th century, especially the early 19th century and then before that. Um, As for the 17th century, yeah, it really does get difficult. But, you know, um, Anthony Burgess wrote a lovely novel, short novel about Shakespeare called Nothing Like the Sun, Um, and that's beautifully done. It's not easy. That's my only, it's not advice, it's just a warning. (laughs) Could you maybe tell us about some of the books that have inspired you in your writing? Well, uh, if I choose, it's only, I mean, there's so many novels that I admire, so much writing I admire, that, uh, and all of it must feed in somewhere and somehow. There was one novel by L.P. Hartley that had a huge impact on me at the time, and that was The Go-Between. Uh, and I, I learned a very important lesson from it at the time, uh, but I when I was reading it, I think I was about 14. I was at boarding school. It's a novel about a young boy who's at a, uh, an independent, you know, private school. Some of his friends are very rich. He goes and stays the summer holidays with, with a much wealthier friend. It's a rather grand house. Uh, uh, it's a very hot summer. And this little boy, who's somewhat out of his depth, comes from a much poorer family, um, becomes the bearer of letters in an illicit love affair. Um, this all takes place against a heat wave, and it left a mark on me that heat waves changes change they they change everyone's behaviour, especially in England, I think. Uh, so that a heat wave becomes very powerful in a novel like Atonement, but it also in my first novel, uh, The Cement Garden. He goes to the greenhouse of this grand uh, spread in the pile in the country to see if the temperature is going to reach 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And one morning, a copy of Punch that was a Victorian, it lasted well into the 20th century, satirical magazine, and on the cover, there's always a picture of Punch, and he's mopping his brow because it's so hot. And in a moment of inspiration, I was sitting in the school library I went across to the shelves and there were all the old bound volumes of Punch. And I pulled out the volume from 1900, which is when the novel is set. It's the month of July. Opened it and I just got this thrill down my back because there on the front cover was Punch mopping his brow. And that interpenetration of the historical and the fictional just thrilled me. And... Maybe I could make the case that that's why I became a novelist. It didn't pass through my mind at at that moment. But it certainly affected me thereafter that you could set invented uh, moments, fictional situations against real things, even small real things like the arrival of a magazine uh, or the weather. I think with that in mind... For those listeners who 
go away and they read your book and they want to find out more about the events that touch Roland's life. Mm. What other sources, either books or novels, or what would you recommend to people to go away and take a look at? I think one of the great contemporary histories of our time is Tony Judd's book called Post-War, a tremendous overview um, of the world, and and particularly in Europe, um, from about 1945 to just into the 20th century. I mean, we've lost him now. I mean, he passed away a few years ago. Great loss, I think, to, uh, to contemporary history. So I think for an overview, um, that's unsurpassable. In relation to my own novel, well, a very important set of events relate to German resistance to Hitler. They were very brave university students, University of Munich. Uh, They simply distributed pamphlets but the pamphlets were amazingly articulate uh, and extraordinarily brave in their condemnation of Hitler um, and how he was leading the country to ruin and the the key figures were um, rounded up and tried in 1943 and guillotined beheaded um, and they went to their deaths very very bravely so there are there are two books um, one is by the sister of one of the students called Inga Scholl, and that's simply called the White Rose. That was the name of their their movement, the Weisse Rosa. And the other is by an American academic called A Noble Treason, a very good, very good account of, of the whole thing, which I depended on a great deal from both of these books. These are histories that run somewhat against the general drift of the British sense of the war, that, that there was opposition to Hitler, um, it was spread all over the country. It never joined itself up. It was, uh, of course, there was a famous July plot. But um, a great deal of sabotage went on in factories, a lot of it unrecorded. Um, it's obviously not very well known here, the White Rose. It's very well known in Germany because it's rather relief-giving, um, comfort-giving foundational myth of the post Third Reich world of uh, you know a very successful um, liberal democracy that was built up afterwards. Um, so one mustn't take too much from it because millions, tens of millions of Germans were not opposed to Hitler and uh, often just looked the other way in the face when they could have faced atrocities and been a little more troubled. But um, it becomes one of the uh, stories that within the the story of lessons that um, is very important to me. So uh, it's a history that I think many people will not know and will discover with um, some amazement. That was Ian McEwen. His new book Lessons is out now, published by Vintage Publishing. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.